From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. It's no secret that women with dense breast tissue have a harder time getting a good result from a mammogram. That's because dense tissue sometimes blocks the view of suspect tissue, including cancer. Now there's a new imaging technique that sees through dense breast tissue for better screening results. We'll hear from Dr. Deborah Rhodes and others who've developed a new technology called molecular breast imaging. Also on the program, a well-run hospice program includes many specialists, including nurses. We'll hear from some hospice nurses about the care they provide. And we'll talk to the author of a new book about the advance of specialization in medicine during the last century. All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shah. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, it is well known that women with dense breast tissue are less likely to get accurate results from a mammogram. And that's because dense breasts can actually obscure suspicious tissue, including breast cancers. Here's what may surprise you, though. About half of women of screening age uh, during the time of their life when they should be screened for breast cancer, half of those women have dense breast tissue. Wow. Now there's new development in breast imaging that shows promise for improving the accuracy of mammography for women with dense breasts. In a recently published study, the technique called molecular breast imaging, or MBI, nearly quadrupled the detection rate of invasive breast cancers in women with dense breast tissue. Pretty impressive. Well, MBI was developed right here at the Mayo Clinic, and here to talk about it are three researchers involved in the project. Dr. Deborah Rhodes is a specialist in preventive Preventive Medicine and senior author of the recent study. Dr. Michael O'Connor is a Mayo Clinic researcher and actual inventor of the MBI. And Dr. Katie Jones is a Mayo Clinic radiologist who works in the Breast Diagnostic Clinic. Welcome, Dr. Rhodes. Thank you, Dr. Shives. You're welcome, Dr. Mike O'Connor. Thank you very much. And Dr. Katie Jones. Thank you for having us. Nice to have you all on the program. So did we realize or have you always known, Dr. Rhodes, that so many women had dense breasts? It's certainly been an evolutionary process in my part of medicine, which is the diagnostic part, seeing women for their annual exams and their clinical breast exams and mammograms, that I began to recognize 10 to 15 years ago what a prevalent problem this is. And my main concern was the sense that I was giving false reassurance to women with extremely dense breast tissue after they had, quote, a normal mammogram. I began to look in into just how many times a mammogram can miss a cancer in a woman with a very, very dense breast, and therefore it's ever more important in those women that we do careful examinations and now, more recently, offer them the option of additional screening to detect breast cancers. Dr. Katie Jones, you read these mammograms. Was it obvious to you also that cancers, for example, were more difficult to detect in women who had dense breasts? Yes, as a radiology community, I think this is something that we've been aware of for a long time, um, and it's been a standard part of our reports for years. We always put in the patient's breast density into our reports, and for those with the highest breast density, we always include a qualifier that it can limit the sensitivity of mammography. So I think in the radiology community, we've been well aware of this, but now it's starting to permeate into more uh, with clinicians being more aware of it as well as patients. 
What does it mean to have dense breasts? What what exactly are you talking about for thus, uh, those of us in the lay public over here? Right. And is this something, by the way, Dr. Rhodes, that you can pick up on exam, or do you only recognize the fact that the dense the tissue is dense on mammography? That's a common point of confusion, Tom. It turns out that you can't determine whether you have dense breasts on the on the basis of how your breasts look or feel. Very often, women equate the lumpiness of their breasts with the density of their breasts, and those are two very distinct issues. Sometimes women with lumpy breasts also have dense breasts, but certainly not always. But obvious to you on mammography, Katie. Right. And what it actually is, is women have variations in the kind of tissue that they have in their breasts. Some women have breasts that are almost entirely fat, which on the mammogram looks black or gray to us, whereas other women have more tissue that is in charge of making the milk and holding the tissue together. We call it connective tissue or fibroglandular tissue. And some women have a lot of that kind of tissue and that looks white on the mammogram. So there's varying grades of the kind of tissue that women have. And if they have more of that white tissue, we put them in the dense category. And if they have more of the fat tissue, then they're not dense. Is there any correlation at all between the age of the woman or the size of the breast? Um, so there is some correlation that as women get older, their breast density may decrease, but that is not 100%. Um, we see older women who still have very dense breast tissue. So I assume you've been looking for an alternative for women with a dense breast, a test that would more easily detect cancers in that group of women. Was, was MRI helpful? MRI is certainly helpful in a well-defined subset of women, and that is women who are at increased risk for breast cancer based on their family history, based on the presence of a genetic mutation that may increase their risk for cancer, or based on some other rarer factors, such as whether they've had radiation to the chest wall as a young woman or an adolescent. Those, in those women, we know clearly that an annual MRI is a be- beneficial supplement to annual mammography to detect breast cancer. MRI is the most sensitive tool that we have for the detection of breast cancer, but because it is a very expensive test and a very complex test to interpret and also leads to a high rate of findings that are not cancer but require additional evaluation, it's really not an appropriate test at this time to be using for the large subset of women with dense breasts, which is almost half of women. So, Katie, give us a, a uh, ballpark figure of the cost of a, a mammogram versus the cost of an MRI. An MRI costs about 10 times that of a mammogram. So are you convinced, Dr. Rhodes, that mammography, let alone MRI scan and a new technique that we'll discuss shortly, that it does indeed save lives? I am very convinced of that, although that is a difficult thing to demonstrate. If you're requiring saving lives as the endpoint for for assessing the benefit of your technology, that takes decades to demonstrate and very large research dollars in order to study enough women to see a distinction. But certainly in the women whom we've 
studied with molecular breast imaging, we found enough additional cancers that we're confident that we have contributed to early detection. Can we pull in uh, the government on this one for just a moment? Because uh, having dense breasts and having that told to you by your provider is something that is is it sweeping the nation? I don't know if it's fair to say that, but I know in the state of Minnesota, that is now the law. Um, explain a little bit about that. This all began uh, in about uh, over five years ago, actually, with a uh, very determined woman, Nancy Capello, who'd been diagnosed with breast cancer, quite an advanced breast cancer, shortly after having a normal mammogram. And she went to her doctor and said, Uh, look at what I've discovered. It turns out that because I have dense breast tissue, there was a a decreased likelihood to begin with that my cancer would be detected on the mammogram. And her doctor essentially said, well, of course, we know that. And Nancy said, well, why didn't I? And she launched a campaign to lobby the state of Connecticut to require notification of women of their breast density after a mammogram. And this legislation passed in 2009, and it's now, similar legislation has now passed in a total of 22 states, so almost half of states, covering over half of the female population. And what about a nationwide? That is also under consideration, but the bills have been and continue to be quite controversial for the reason that... Although we know it's true that many women have dense breast tissue and mammography does not perform as well in those women, we don't yet agree on what to do about it. All right, we'll take a short break. When we come back, we'll be talking uh, more with Dr. Rhodes, Dr. Jones, and also Dr. Michael O'Connor, who may have invented an answer to this problem of the woman with the dense breast. When we come back, myth or matter of fact, the MBI technology got its start, Tom, in a garage. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shive. And I'm Tracy McRae. We're talking with some breast experts, particularly breast cancer experts, and we're talking about imaging that can help detect breast cancer early. Our guests, Mayo Clinic researchers, Dr. Deborah Rhodes and Dr. Michael O'Connor, and radiologist Katie Jones. Dr. Michael O'Connor, new kid on the block, and it's called MBI, and it could potentially be the answer to helping detect cancers in women with dense breasts. Tell us about the development of the test. The technology, well, this is something that we started working on at Mayo in about 2002. Um, we, I was actually doing some work on behalf of Mayo with one of the manufacturers of nuclear medicine equipment, and when we were looking at their technology, they had in their research lab a small detector that was a prototype that they had been developing for nuclear cardiology. and. They finished their work on it, and we asked, could we borrow it and try it out? Um, Because we thought that this was something that would actually work well for breast imaging. And so we brought it to Mayo, and from that we began to construct our first system through a variety of of episodes of new gantries and our uh, backroom work. We created the first MBI unit at Mayo. Okay, myth or matter of fact, were you in a garage when that (laughs) happened? (laughs) Parts were done in the garage, but in all honesty, most of it were done in, in our research labs here. It did involve a lot of unusual components that were available from the Walmarts and okay, the yeah, Home Depots and places like that. That's what I've heard. Two things. One, this was in a garage, and two, duct tape was involved. Well, the, the duct tape is not correct. It was postal tape. 
because we thought the duct tape was the wrong colour to have on, on, a, on a clinical unit. So we thought the poster tape was a brown colour and actually worked better with the decor. Is it possible that you can explain to a lay person or even an orthopedic surgeon how this works? So the MBI is a very different technology from ultrasound and mammography. So with ultrasound and mammography, you're looking at the anatomy of the breast. So you're seeing the structure of the tissue there. With molecular breast imaging, you're looking at the function of the tissue. So we don't see the structure of the breast at all, which is why this technology is independent of breast density. Breast density is more a, a mammographic finding, if you like. There's no such thing in molecular breast imaging. So our technology is uh, is not sensitive to or not dependent upon breast density. And because we're looking just at function, we expect that tumors behave abnormally. They function abnormally. So if we can see abnormally functioning tissue, we can look at that and follow that up. And that's what leads us to finding these cancers that can be missed in the dense areas on mammograms. So it's not necessarily that you're looking to see cancer, you're just looking to see abnormal cells? Correct. You're looking to see a tissue that's functioning abnormally. Now, not every technique is perfect, and, and even a technique like MBI will have a false positive because there are some types of tissue that are benign that are not functioning normally that will show up. Well, with the MRI, you have the high risk of a false positive. Is that the same situation then with MBI? It does not appear to be as significant a problem with MBI as it is with MRI. MBI, MBI is maybe a, an easier technology to interpret, and, and uh, uh, Dr. Jones can comment on that from her perspective in terms of the interpretation of these procedures, but it's a far simpler procedure, I believe, from radiologist's perspective in terms of interpretation. Dr. Jones, is it easier to read an MBI than it is a mammogram? It is, especially in women with dense breast tissue. With MBI, it takes away all the white tissue that we see in women with dense breasts. You just see areas that light up if they're abnormal, and if there isn't anything abnormal, it's just a light gray. Um, they're very straightforward to read. And in comparison to an MRI, which contains thousands of images, an MBI only has a roughly eight images for us to look at at a time. All right, so Dr. O'Connor, when can I get this done? <laughs> no, what, what, is the pro, what is the future for the MBI? Well, um, right now the technology is just being deployed hopefully to uh, Mayo Clinic Arizona and uh, Florida in the next probably six to eight weeks. So, and then we're hoping by 2016 to have it in the other health system sites in the Midwest. It's currently available in Rochester. Uh, Dr. Rhodes, you indicated that you can't tell on clinical exam that a woman might have dense breasts, so you'd have to do a mammogram first, and then if the tissue dictated, then you would go ahead and perform the MRI? That's correct. I'm sorry, the MBI? That's correct, and and that emphasizes a critical point in this discussion, which is that MBI was not intended at this time to replace mammography. It really is a complementary technology, and even in women with dense breasts, we're currently advising that both mammography and MBI be done if the woman chooses to have additional screening such as MBI. It does not replace the mammogram. The mammogram is actually how we detect the presence of density in the first place. So in order for a woman to determine if she has dense breasts, she needs to undergo an, a mammogram. Will the MBI replace the MRI? In certain women in a screening setting, yes. The reason why we developed this technology 
is to serve that population of women with dense breasts who don't otherwise qualify for an MRI based on their risk level. There are other tests being evaluated for this additional screening in women with dense breasts. That includes the addition of screening ultrasound. It includes something called three-dimensional mammography or tomosynthesis and some newer modalities such as contrast-enhanced mammography. And what we really need as a next step is a trial involving multiple centers across the country where we compare these different options and determine which one is best. But because we don't yet have such a trial, at Mayo Clinic, we've gone forward with evaluating these technologies and their performance in our own institution and determining that from the existing available options, supplemental screening, if a woman chooses to pursue it, should be done with this 3D mammography or tomosynthesis or molecular breast imaging. Uh, We talked about the cost of mammogram versus MRI. Where does MBI fit in this, Dr. O'Connor? Currently at Mayo, the cost of an MBI is the same as a mammogram or maybe slightly less, I think. So it's very, very comparable to mammography in terms of cost and far less less expensive than an MRI. So, Dr. Rhodes, how do you make the decision whether or not to recommend that a woman with dense breast tissue on mammography has an MBI? How, how do you make that decision and recommendation? That's the million-dollar question, and it's a source of frustration and concern for patients and providers alike. Women in Minnesota and in other states around the U.S. are now receiving this letter informing them that they have dense breast tissue and informing them that this may compromise the ability of a mammogram to detect a cancer. And then they're encouraged to go and talk to their doctor about what they should do. So those discussions are difficult, they take a lot of time, and they're complex. There is no easy answer. If we all agreed that dense breast tissue meant you should get a certain additional test, it would be easy. But there's currently no such consensus. And so a discussion really needs to take place because pursuing this additional screening has both risks and benefits. The risks include the detection of additional findings that may lead to yet further testing and cost and anxiety, all to determine that there is no cancer present. But the potential benefit is the detection of cancers that would otherwise go undetected, perhaps for a year or more. All right, the bottom line is that uh, mammography is a good test, but in certain instances an MRI or an MBI may be a better test, first particularly for women with dense breasts. Thanks very much, Dr. Deb Rhodes, Dr. Michael O'Connor, and Dr. Katie Jones for coming in to talk to us about the latest breast imaging technology, MBI. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we discuss the benefits of hospice with nurses who provide the care. Coming up, the latest health and medical news from Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with the Mayo Clinic News Network headline. You've heard the saying, early to bed, early to rise, makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. Well, a recent study in the Journal of Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism shows there may be some truth to that. Researchers found that men who regularly turn in late had an increased risk of diabetes, and women who did the same had an increased risk of metabolic syndrome, which is a cluster of conditions including high blood pressure, high blood sugar, raised cholesterol levels, and excess belly fat.
Mayo Clinic sleep expert Dr. Peter Gay says your body needs an average of seven hours of good sleep a night, and that may be more important for your health than when you get it. He says research shows if you get a lot more or a lot less than seven hours of sleep a night on a regular basis, you increase the risk of some cancers and heart disease. The bottom line, try to get an average of seven hours of sleep a night if you can, and talk to your health care provider if you're concerned about sleep. And that's today's Mayo Clinic News Network headline. I'm Vivian. Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shaw. And I'm Tracy McRae. When done well, providing end-of-life care in a hospice setting is a well-orchestrated operation that relies on specialists in several different fields, including nursing. With us to talk about the nurse's role in hospice care are Mayo Clinic hospice nurses Margot Krocious and Sherry Ringstorf. Ladies, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having us. Yes, you're welcome. So you are both hospice nurses, and hospice is end-of-life care. What's it like being a hospice nurse? Well, I would have to say being a hospice nurse is probably one of the most fulfilling things I've ever done in nursing, which I've done almost 40 years, uh, because um, when we are with someone who is living until they die, and uh, we help them be comfortable in that, it is an honor and a privilege to be with them and their family. You said you said when you came in that uh, you're more about living than you are about dying. Yet I think when people think about hospice, they don't always think about living. Margo, um, how do you draw that line or help patients help um, help the family members to see that difference? Usually, when we admit a patient to our hospice program, one of the first things we ask them is, well, first of all, we say, tell us what your doctor has told you about what's happening to you right now. That gives us the springboard to find out what's important to them. Most of the time they'll say, I've I've been told that I'm very near the end of my life and that I what I've decided is I really want to make sure my family is taken care of and that I don't suffer and I don't become a burden to them. Once we get that on the table, then we can talk about things. Their energy goes to I want to make it to my daughter's wedding. I want to see my first grandchild born. And we can, in most cases, we can help make that happen. Um, we've had multiple examples of patients that really thought all they were going to do is suffer and die. And we have helped them achieve going to a grandson's football game or whatever. Margo, would you say that's the main, if you could lump everybody all into one, the main reason why the main thing they express is that they don't want to be a burden or they don't want to suffer? Right. Absolutely. Hands down, that is the answer we get. So who decides uh, who's a candidate for hospice care and when is the right time to initiate that? Well, that is the process because this is a Medicare certified program. Came about in 1983, and um, and so with that, of course, there is going to be some guidelines and some protocol to follow. So we have um, uh, on our Mayo Clinic hospice team, uh, we we always let the patient know they can keep their primary, they can keep their primary doctor, but we also then have to work with our medical director, and we are very privileged to have five. Um, uh, physicians here at Mayo Clinic that are uh, palliative hospice care certified who are um, part take kind of take turns help with being the medical director for us to look at eligibility and then work with us on uh, as we do our interdisciplinary team so yeah there are a few things that you have to hop you know a few hoops or a few things to get in place but they're they're pretty straightforward and from then on we're just the team that helps 
helps our patient and their family. Can you explain the difference in, uh, between those different types of care and explain what you mean by palliative care versus hospice care versus comfort care? Well, palliative care is um, somewhat newer than hospice care. Hospice has been around, as Sherry said, since the, in, the, in this country, since the 80s. Palliative care is a, is a larger bubble. If you looked at a Venn diagram, the palliative care is for anyone that has been diagnosed with a chronic illness. And it's, it's the team of palliative medicine really talks to the patient and family about goals of care. How can we make the most for this long-term disease that you may have? When the patient gets to a point that chemotherapies, um, transplants, all of those things have, have not worked or are no longer going to work, then hospice team can step in because the hospice is more, um, well, according to Medicare, six months or less prognosis. Can't see my quotes on the radio. <laughs> um, comfort care is is more of an in the hospital setting when a patient is admitted to the hospital and they are no longer um, they are DNR DNI meaning they've chosen to not be resuscitated, not be intubated. They just want comfort. It's more of a hospital language. The hospital service then has an order set that they go by whereby the kind of the whole focus of the care changes to instead of intervening, doing interventions, they provide comfort meds and just support the family and the patient in that way. Perfect explanation. Sherry, I was just going to ask, when this came onto my radar, uh, the the email came along, I thought uh, one of the things I heard was that you want people to be aware of hospice. And I was just surprised to even read that because I thought, are people really not aware of hospice? You know, they they aren't. They Mm -hmm. aren't. They're not um, always aware or maybe they've heard it, but they just don't think it's right for them. Sure, because we're never going to die. Right, right. (laughs) And and they don't, you know, it might mean then, um, you know, like you said, uh, they're going to take their meds away, which we're not going to do, or I'm going to be homebound, which is the last thing we're going to do because we have a great volunteer program to be a certified hospice program, which we are. Mm -hmm. We're even joint commission and that you uh, must have an active volunteer program. and we have wonderful, I think over a hundred volunteers or more that can uh, help families do everything from sit with them or take them to the casino <laughs> or do something fun like that. Um, we also um, have a bereavement component uh, in our, our hospice, which we are a nonprofit hospice. We do have a bereavement program for 13 months to be there for the caregivers. And so those are some of the things that you're going to find, you know, in hospice programs and which are different. But I think getting the awareness out there, uh, when to come in, when you get certified, your palliative hospice, we want to do both. And I will say at, at this clinic, at Mayo Clinic, we do a very good job of working with the palliative care team and just working along then with hospice. It makes it, it does. It makes it more about living. When you say it like that, it makes it more about living than dying. Is there an average time that someone is in hospice? The length of stay in hospice is all over the board, really. Um, for example, we have a lady on right now that's been on for two years. And the reason she still qualifies is that she is dying very, very slowly. And they keep saying she has less than six months. Right, because when you look at her status, it's like compared to six months ago or three months ago, she's eating less, she's lost more weight, she's more bedridden, she's less communicative, you know, all of those things. A lot of times, as Sherry said, people don't want, I mean, who wants to call hospice, right? 
we go to the door and people are afraid to let us in, but they've called us. We go in, we meet with them, we tell them what our services are. And as we leave, there's this big relief and they say, we are so glad we called you. We were afraid, but we're so glad we called you. Yeah, so typical story. My doctor told me I had six months to live. Oh, and here I am two months. years later. How often do you hear that? <laughs> so, uh, uh, Medicare uh, cover the entire cost of hospice care? You know, it covers, yes, the services that are provided, the medications that are um, related to the diagnosis, any equipment needs, um, nursing visits. Uh, we get a per diem is how it works, and then we use that wherever the patient is. So we might have a patient in assisted living, which we have some wonderful facilities now in Rochester, or we might have them in a nursing home if we're contracted with that nursing home. We do have to be contracted uh, to provide uh, Medicare services in a skilled nursing facility. So, or like we said, they, most people would like to be at home, but we'll go to where they are. I had a gentleman say, um, I'll talk to you about hospice on the phone. He says, but I won't come to your clinic. And, <laughs> and cause he had been to like many clinic visits, you know, and I said, guess what? I don't even have a clinic. I'm coming to you. I heard you say when you came into the room that hospice, you call it a philosophy, not a place. Explain that. You know, it's an approach to this journey in or this segment of life is kind of uh, what we, we talk about. It's just the approach to how you're going to live now um, at the at the end of your life, you know, and how and what that means is that then the patient can self-determine along with his family and that there will be a team that will support them in that because we are interdisciplinary everywhere from um, Margot, who does quality and everything else, uh, to um, maybe massage and and volunteers and pet therapy. But in that, we will have a we have a pharmacist on board. We have um, our physicians. And and so with this team, along with the caregivers, we're going to help them in this last journey. Hospice nurses Sherry Ringsdorf and Margot Crocious, thanks so much for being with us. Thank, Thank you. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll hear from the author of a new book about some of the major developments in health and medicine of the last century. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Today's world of medicine is highly specialized. Doctors spend years training to become neurosurgeons, orthopedists, or heart specialists. But it wasn't always that way. At the start of the last century, a lot of areas of medicine were just beginning to evolve. Cardiology or heart specialists among them. Sure. For example, techniques that we take for granted today, echocardiograms, open heart surgery, cardiac catheterization, all of them came into their own during the 20th century. A recently retired Mayo Clinic cardiologist has just written a book about the growth of specialization in cardiology and other fields of medicine. He's Dr. Bruce Fye, and his book is titled titled Caring for the Heart, Mayo Clinic and the Rise of Specialization. Welcome to the program, Dr. Fye. It's good to be here. Thank you. Tell us about the book. Why did you decide to write a book about specialization, about the Mayo Clinic? I know you'd written two other books, uh, but this one's special. And there are a lot of, have been a lot, it's been well received. Well, thank you. Fortunately, it has been well received. The uh, reason I wrote this book is actually fairly straightforward. When I was recruited to Mayo and came here in 2000, the head of cardiology at that time was a cardiologist named Jamil Tajik, and he knew about a book that I'd published in 1996 called American Cardiology, the History of a Specialty at its College. So he said to me, 
Oh, you're coming to Mayo Clinic. Well, you have to write a history of cardiology at Mayo. <laughs> I said, well, I just got here. In, two, right. in 2000. Exactly. Okay. And he, it made sense, though. It truly made sense to me. The thing that I had no idea was that it was going to be so complicated and so fascinating. I had remarkable access to resources and, fortunately, a number of individuals that were true pioneers of, of cardiology and cardiac physiology at Mayo Clinic and cardiac surgery were still alive. I started doing interviews in 2000. And uh, over the course of about 10 years, I did 63 interviews. About half were insiders, Mayo staff mm -hmm. at various levels, including technicians and, and obviously uh, consultants, surgeons and uh, cardiologists. But about half were from outside trying to get external perspectives about Mayo. You know, when you look at your book, The Caring for the Heart, you can tell that it's something to do with heart care. You can tell that it's something to do with the Mayo Clinic. But the specialization piece is probably the third uh, right. rung of this whole ladder. Explain a little bit about specialization and why that's part of this book. The primary purpose of the book is, in fact, to describe how the care of patients with heart disease changed, particularly during the second half of the 20th century. And it changed in ways that are, in retrospect, incomprehensible. And then that leads to specialization and subspecialization. The way the book is structured, the first four chapters sort of talk about the development of the Mayo Clinic up through the Second World War. Then there are sort of some intermediate chapters that describe the uh, invention of electrocardiography in the very early 20th century and how that stimulated the creation of cardiology as a specialty in the sort yeah. of the World War One era. Technology. Yeah. Technology it's fair is to huge. say that technology is what has kind of driven that specialization. Is that fair to say? It's a huge factor. I mean, interestingly enough, I mean, the Mayo Clinic uh, is the prototypical multi-specialty group practice. In fact, I encourage people to think of it. We think of Mayo as an academic medical center. But in fact, it's a multi-specialty group practice that's marinated in academic values. I mean, the research programs, the educational programs are huge, but fundamentally, it's a practice. And that's probably not a coincidence in terms of why it winds up being at the top of the U.S. News and World Report thing, along with the Cleveland Clinic, which right. is a clone. I would emphasize I did write the book for a general audience. It's not written just for medical historians. It's not written just for heart specialists. It really is written for people who are curious about heart disease and the different ways that it's cared for and how that's evolved. And frankly, there's essentially no one who hasn't been touched by heart disease. So I think it frankly should reach a broad audience. And fortunately, the individuals that had a chance to review the manuscript uh, agreed. You know, all right, Mither, matter of fact. Yeah, Dr. Fitellis, Mayo Clinic doctors were interrogated by the FBI about President Ro Franklin Roosevelt's failing health. Is that a myth or is that a fact? It is actually a fact. I think it's one of the most interesting aspects of the book in terms of, of original research and making a discovery. I came upon this because Vannevar Bush was asked by President Roosevelt to write a report on how to maintain the momentum of wartime research funded by the federal government in peacetime. So Roosevelt asked Bush to write the report. He sent him the letter a week after the November 7th, 1944 election. Bush submitted the report to Harry Truman. So I thought to myself, I'd better look into this. I'm a bit familiar with FDR's death, but I need to read a bit about this. And then I read and read and read, as I want to do in the course of this research, <laughs> and I fell upon various bits and pieces that, as I put it together, I thought people have published the fact that the FBI came to Rochester two weeks before the 1944 election, but no one has actually said the reason they came was to be certain 
that the very influential Mayo Clinic name did not get somehow splashed around in a very close political race. People assume today that FDR won by a landslide. It's not true. It was the closest of his four elections. And there were concerns about his cardiac status because a Life magazine photograph in July showed the president in a train car in San Diego accepting the the nomination for the Democratic candidate for the presidency. And in the picture, there are only six people in the picture one of whom in profile was recognized by some individuals as a cardiologist. Ah. So it led, well, wait a minute, why is a cardiologist with the president? (laughs) And the White House physician, Ross McIntyre, repeatedly lied about the president's health, claimed that for a man of his age, he's in excellent health, and they... Uh, FDR was evaluated by this cardiologist for the first time in late March 1944, found that he was in heart failure and characterized him as having uh, hypertensive cardiovascular disease. So hypertensive, so he had high blood pressure plus a failing heart. Severe high blood pressure. Mm-hmm. Blood pressure today that would like, oh Off the my. charts, huh? 230 over 140. I mean, these are extraordinarily high blood pressures. Now, this is right in the in, toward the end of the war. 1944, the war was, what, over in 45? Was he running against Dewey? He was running mm-hmm. against Tom Dewey. Uh-huh. And uh, about three-quarters of the newspapers were for Dewey. And uh, there was a lot of concern, internal concern, that Dewey might win. And so this is why in October, the way it unfolded in terms of how did Mayo get involved, Mayo's second cardiologist, a man named Arlie Barnes, had gone to a meeting in Washington, D.C., and his younger colleague says, well, while you're here, would you like to see the Naval Hospital, which was two years old at that point? said, sure. So they're out at the Naval Hospital, and as they're walking around, the younger cardiologist says, you know, there's talk here that the president has serious heart disease. Barnes came, took the train back to to, uh, Rochester. He had lunch with Burl Kirkland, who was the head of radiology, John Kaler, who owned the Kaler Hotel Complex, Harry Harwick, chief administrator at Mayo Clinic. The lunchtime conversation apparently didn't dwell on this fact, just a conversation that, you know, there's talk that the president has serious heart disease. So Kirkland... That night, went and played poker with Harwick and some other doctors. And during the course of the poker game, apparently, again, in the conversation came up, you know, there's talk in Bethesda that he's got serious heart disease. One of the poker players was a surgeon who, in fact, had cared for someone in the administration previously. Uh And my argument is that that was the link to get the the White House in the loop and then they got the FBI in the loop, and they did basically a sort of a SWAT team, sent two agents from St. Paul to Rochester. And in the memo, J. Edgar Hoover says to the presidential press secretary, Steve Early, we figured out that there just was some loose talk and conversation that started at the Bethesda Hospital and spread out to the Mayo Clinic, but uh, we've basically taken care of it. And if there's anything else you want us to do, let me know. So the FBI was here at the Mayo Clinic. They were here, and no, this did not break. Wow. Dr. Fye, fascinating. Good to have you with us. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. Dr. Bruce Fye is a retired Mayo Clinic cardiologist and author of the new book, Caring for the Heart, Mayo Clinic and the Rise of Specialization. That's our program for this week. For more information, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network for today's podcast and previously aired programs.
Tweet us your health and medicine questions anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or email us at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our senior producer is Rich Dietman, our social media editor Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for being with us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.